Now on Food FM, it's Tales from a Corner Shop. Tales from a Corner Shop on Food FM. My name is John Shepherd, and my corner shop is called Partridges, a delicatessen and speciality food shop, which is situated on the Duke of York Square in Chelsea, parallel to the King's Road in London and close to Stone Square. This Christmas will in fact be our 49th, and I wanted to start by giving a brief history of the previous five decades before focusing on the great importance of Christmas in terms of selling food and wines in our part of the world. Partridges opened its doors for the first time at 132 Sloan Street on the 25th of May 1972 at 9am. A former car showroom had been transformed into a delicatessen with the slogan, Good Things for the Larder. It was the vision of my older brother, Richard, who after studying at the LSE with Mick Jagger, among many others, had opened a chain of late night convenience stores called Shepherd Foods in 1968. Now on Food FM... It's Tales from a Corner Shop. Tales from a Corner Shop on Food FM. My name is John Shepherd, and my corner shop is called Partridges, a delicatessen and speciality food shop, which is situated on the Duke of York Square in Chelsea, parallel to the King's Road in London and close to Stone Square. This Christmas will in fact be our 49th and I wanted to start by giving a brief history of the previous five decades before focusing on the great importance of Christmas in terms of selling food and wines in our part of the world. Partridges opened its doors for the first time at 132 Sloan Street on the 25th of May 1972 at 9am. A former car showroom had been transformed into a delicatessen with the slogan, Good Things for the Larder. It was the vision of my older brother, Richard, who after studying at the LSE with Mick Jagger, among many others, had opened a chain of late-night convenience stores called Shepherd Foods in 1968. I joined in 1973 and have worked here ever since, and full-time since graduating. As a delicatessen, Partridge's was going very much against the trend of the time. Convenience and self-service were the clarion cause for food retailers. Counters were being phased out, floor staff were being reduced, and product ranges modernised. It was a bold move and a challenging one. Our prices were significantly higher than local competitors, who included Oak Shots, Justin de Blanc and Jackson's of Piccadilly, and international stores on Sloan Square. Although by closing at 9pm we traded later than all of them, and by opening on Sundays and offering free deliveries provided a service that was readily appreciated and provided a USP. We still have the old delivery bike. However, 1972 was just prior to the recession of 1974, the oil crisis, three-day week, and power cuts. So not a particularly auspicious time to launch an independent traditional food shop. It was a different world in other ways too. On the day we opened, T-Rex topped the charts with Metal Guru. The temperature was recorded at 47 degrees Fahrenheit, and Ramu the killer whale was performing at Windsor Great Park. The Watergate Hotel in Washington was about to be burgled the following day. Products that we sold from day one included bird's nest soup, gull's eggs, frozen jugged hare, game pie and taramasalata were also popular. Our tea range included gunpowder tea and Russian caravan, and the cake counter sold black forest gateau and a chocolate cake the likes of which I've never seen again. Our speciality of the house was the Alderton marmalade ham. In the wine department, a bottle of our van ordinaire sold for 60p, Chablis for 77p, and Moet and Chandon champagne for £2.20 a bottle. Under the section Lesser European Wines, there was Valpolicella for 90p. 
Our free-range eggs were supplied by the family dentist, and later on our olive oil was produced by the family vet. We were locals ourselves, and my first home was just a few hundred yards from the front door, having arrived in this world at St George's Hospital on High Park Corner. At the time of our opening, Upstairs Downstairs was a fictional television programme about life in Edwardian London, and we fortunately reinforced the image of the local grocers. Indeed, we were mentioned in the more recent remake. In 1972, it was also the year of decimalisation. Not many products had date codes. There were no barcodes, prices were applied using a price gun, and Sunday trading laws restricted the hours when alcohol could be sold and ensured that household products and Bibles could not be sold at all. It was actually very confusing. On several occasions, I recall police officers in uniform asking to buy alcohol, which would result in a swift prosecution if a hapless member of staff agreed to do it, something we fortunately avoided. So by the end of the 1970s, Partridge's was still open, but still had not quite developed a stride pattern. In 1983, the opportunity arose to buy the double-unit carpet shop next door. I'd gone in with the intention of actually buying a carpet, but the conversation with the elderly owner soon developed into a much larger business transaction. So in 1984 we tripled in size and our new address was 132 to 134 Sloan Street. There was a much larger deli counter, wine section, fruit and veg department and patisserie counter. We even had a rotisserie oven for cooked chickens that eventually caught fire itself. But in the first year sales doubled and by the end of the second year had nearly trebled. We now had very large windows for product display and the death trap grocer's boy delivery bike had been replaced by a van. By the end of the decade, sales had ridden over 600% and this was a real transformation in our fortunes. We also started to export in a small way and became founder members of the Guild of Fine Food Retailers, who were later to become real champions and saviours of artisan food in the United Kingdom. Their creation of the Great Taste Awards, often referred to as the Oscars of Speciality Foods, played a key part in the artisan food revolution of the early 2000s. It was in the 1980s that Christmas sales became a big thing for us mainly because department stores closed their order books at the beginning of December. We kept taking orders until the last possible moment. Christmas hampers were therefore very popular, as were cooked Christmas turkeys and hams, caviar, port and Stilton boxes, house claret, Peyton Peperium, Christmas puddings, Carlsbad and Elvis plums, moutard de Meaux, sides of smoked salmon and foie gras, which we no longer sell. Also, by the end of the 1980s, we were stocking over 100 own label items. By the beginning of the 1990s, the flow of the mid-80s had given way to an ebb. Oakshots, our nearest competitor, had been replaced by the much more commercially orientated Europa Foods. The Sunday Trading Act of 1994 allowed large supermarkets to trade legitimately late at night, and for some hours on Sundays. There was also a recession at the beginning of the decade that did not end until 1993. Sales at Partridge's fell by 16% during this time, but later on started to flow again and by the end of the decade recorded an increase of 180% over the course of the next 10 years. In 1991, a memorable and fortuitous event occurred. We received a phone call from the palace asking to order some products. We were not entirely sure at first which palace this was, theatre or public house. Luckily, it turned out to be the palace, as in the royal household. Rumour had it that another supplier had dismissed their royal warrant holder. The Royal Warrant is actually granted to an individual, not to a company, and so technically the Royal Warrant had been surrendered. Due to our close proximity and desire to supply the Royal Household, we leapt at the opportunity, and in 1994 were granted the Royal Warrant as grocers to Her Majesty the Queen. Last year was our 25th anniversary of being a Royal Warrant holder. As with the beginning of the 1980s and 1990s, the millennium for us did not off get off to a very good start, apart from the absence of the millennium bug. 
From the end of the year 2000 until 2004, our sales declined by 17%. One of the reasons was the arrival of Waitrose Belgravia, about three quarters of a mile away. At the time, they were regarded with admirations as champions of gentrification around the country, but regarded with dread for their range of speciality foods by many small delicatessen owners. However, another fortuitous turn occurred when the Cadogan Estate invited us to move to the newly created Duke of York Square, which was a shopping area created out of the Duke of York barracks on the King's Road. The 500-yard move southwest was not an easy manoeuvre to perform. We managed to close down one shop and reopen the other in the space of about four days, if I recall it correctly. Thousands of food and drink products were transported round the square. We also expended no money at all on advertising, apart from a sign on the front door of our own premises informing customers that we had relocated. This had little effect. In 2004, the Duke of York Square was no more as a barracks than as a retail destination. Due to our absence from Sloan Street, many customers thought we had closed down entirely, and taxi drivers denied all knowledge of the new square. In fairness, it was in fact the first public square to open in London for over a 100 years. We occupied the ground floor of Querapel House, a building which, among other uses, had been used as an indoor marching hall. A year later, to encourage more footfall, we launched the Duke of York Square Market with the support of Cadogan. At first, we started with about 20 traders, who I had managed to attract over from Borough Market. As many business ventures go, the market was quiet for the first year or so, and many traders came and went. Slowly, however, it started to establish itself, and footfall increased on Saturdays, and the number of traders grew to about 70, with a significant waiting list. It was always a business risk to bring 70 competitors to trade just outside our front door, but the market has benefited the shop over the years and made it more accessible to a wider demographic. As a rule, we always try to offer stores to smaller businesses and coined the word Startisan to cover the start-up artisans who form the main body of the market. Over the past decade, there has been, have been many memorable events. In 2012, we celebrated the Diamond Jubilee with the rest of the country and joined in a large party in the square. In 2013, we ran the Coronation Festival, or helped run the Coronation Festival, at Buckingham Palace. In 2016, we opened a Startisans Cafe and launched a shop in Covent Garden, and the market won a national award as Best Market Attraction. Also in that year, we won an award for Best Family Business and Retailing from Family Business United. In 2017, we joined the trend and created our own Chelsea Flower Gin, which has now proven to be one of our best-selling products. Returning to the theme of Christmas, for all the 48 previous Christmases we've experienced, nothing has prepared us for Christmas 2020 and the full onslaught of COVID-19. Looking at the past year, despite a panic buying boom in March, which produced sales in excess of the previous Christmas, turnover has been subdued ever since. There has been significantly less footfall, but fortunately increased average spending. We reached an adhere in July and August of this year when sales dropped 16.5% and 12% respectively. But September was only slightly down, and October showed a slight increase of 3%, followed by November, a decidate 1% increase over last year. So for the year, we are only fractionally down, but as we confront December, it's difficult to know how it will all pan out. Christmas planning starts for us in June, when we begin organising our annual Christmas catalogue, which features hampers and gift ideas for the festive season. This is finalised in September and arrives in October, which is very late by normal standards but the most of our sales for Christmas occur very late indeed. We place a lot of our food and wine orders in the summer, an activity that has proven particularly difficult this year. Some of our management feel strongly that we should reduce orders in this pandemic year. 
Others feel in some cases we should increase them. This latter course of action may look like a prima facie case of clinical insanity under the circumstances. However, the reasoning is that after a year of toil, turbulence and temporary terror, there may be a concerted attempt to have as traditional a Christmas as possible. Certainly we're expecting online to keep expanding, but overall my guess is that we have reduced orders by about 20%. There is always some scope for last minute ordering anyhow, so better safe than sorry for the time being. The central problem with Christmas 2020 is that a memorable festive season is usually measured by footfall and not just snowfall. December has a gravitational pull on customers. This year, though, Newton's laws of motion will have to be rewritten for retail. We're essentially aiming for the same level of business while allowing for footfall to be down around 25% in previous years, which is what we are currently running at. Although average spending has actually risen by 11%, which is usually what happens when passing trade is diminished. At these parameters, it looks like Christmas sales could be down by as much as 15%. However, a lot will, of course, depend on online sales and the shift in focus that will bring to traditional delis, for example, targeted marketing and proportionate labour. The erratic sales experience I mentioned above is reflected very much in our customer delivery services. The good news is that speciali- the good news is that speciality foods are a real hit for customers who request deliveries and the cost of the delivery does not seem prohibitive in our part of the world. However, the not-so-good news is that there seems to be no rhyme nor reason as to why one day we seem to be happily inundated with delivery requests, and the next day it goes alarmingly quiet. Weather is an obvious reason, but doesn't always fit the pattern. Neither does breaking news, nor traffic problems, nor technology glitches, nor television programmes, which are sometimes suggested as reasons for quiet lulls. This volatility makes it challenging to organise a serious delivery service in terms of staffing and fulfilment. Having enough labour to deal with a rush of deliveries while still maintaining service standards in the shop is a key balance of priorities. In total, our deliveries are still only a small percentage of overall sales at around 5-7%, to but nevertheless a growing one. It used to be 1%. Now the weekly amount is poised to overtake our patisserie counter sales. This is in the light of the fact that we have parted ways with Amazon. Also, the more premium foods we add to the list of products available for delivery, the wider the range we sell, as there is not yet a core product range emerging. At present, it is widely spread across the shop, including the basics. We hope that by putting in more resources to this project for Christmas 2020, we can benefit from a previously under-resourced area of prospective sales without disrupting footfall to the shop. Clearly, further analysis needs to be carried out to identify with whom and by how we can grow this important area. As a matter of fact, we've always offered a delivery service since the early days, historically and at times hysterically. However, the stimulus behind this was sadly along the lines of Dr. Johnson's dog, the one that walked on his hand legs. It was not done well. In fact, it was surprising to see it done at all. It was a box ticked rather than a box delivered efficiently. Unless the delivery zone was on our doorstep, that is. As is so often the way with creativity and retailing, desperation is the greatest profit. Ideas form in difficult times, but developing them into sustainable aspects of the shop is another matter. I look forward to reporting our Christmas sales to see if there was any noticeable uplift in hampers and seasonal gift ideas delivered to front doors at short notice. I mentioned earlier the importance of game pie and black forest gatto in the early days of the shop. Other products that we sold in the festive season I particularly recall were at least four types of ham, Alderton, York, Bradenham and Honey Roast, lots of game pie and also veal ham and egg pie. Cream cheese and rich crackers were an item. Tongue was popular. Stuffed peppers, salmon fish cakes and terrace masalata were all sought after. Rum were also a thing. 
and Carlsbad plums had a great following and still do, except we cannot seem to source them. I also recall Newbury fruits and John Lusty's soups, particularly turtle, and Bondwell frozen vegetables as well. In the wine department we had Blue Nun, Matthias Rosé and Bull's Blood, and of course hampers and Christmas puddings were the celebrity stars of the shop during a 70s and 80s Christmas. Today we still sell several traditional favourites from the above list, but Christmas puddings have been replaced by panettone at the top of the list, with our own mince pies probably the best-selling product of them all. Marron glacé, chocolate olivers and champagne truffles have all survived the past 40 years. From the deli counters, smoked salmon still reigns supreme, with hams, dilton, raclette and blinis, also sought after. Caviar is also popular, as are Elvis plums, Christmas cakes, Peyton Peperium, Stollen and all types of marzipan. In the wine department, our own label champagne is the most popular, with Prosecco not far behind, and our own Chelsea flower gin having a steady but dedicated following. We often get asked what unusual lines we sell. A few years ago, insects were popular, and also strange terrines like bison, ostrich and water rat, but in the main, we stick to the regular seasonal favourites. Next year will be our 50th Christmas. The atmosphere in the run-up to Christmas Eve is always so special in the shop. Regulars and locals kindly sending cards, and it's lovely to touch base with them at this time of the year. Next year, we are determined that no pandemic, power cut, or possible problem will hold us back. Tales from a Corner Shop on Food FM. You've been listening to Tales from a Corner Shop on Food FM.